0: There is astounding diversity in our world. Think about it. Different people, different languages, different locations, different types of clothing, different types of food. There is astounding diversity when it comes to the people on the face of the earth. There's astounding diversity when it comes to culture and custom. But when it comes to spiritual matters, there are only two ways to live. When it comes to the things of God, there are only two ways that people can live. Everyone on the face of this earth is living one of two ways. And everyone in this room is living one of two ways. And Habakkuk highlights this reality in Habakkuk chapter 2. So turn there with me. Habakkuk chapter 2, as we continue our study, line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful minor prophet found in the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to read verse 4 together this morning. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The Bible says... Behold, his soul, speaking of the the Babylonians, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Two ways to live. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask that you would draw near to us in this moment. Lord, one thing, we are acutely aware of is this. We need you. And all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So would you move in our midst by your Spirit, opening the eyes of our hearts, bending our wills toward you, and would you transform us by your grace and for your glory? Lord, help us to understand there are two ways and only two ways to live when it comes to the things of God. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I've given you the outline of the book of Habakkuk. The first chapter is a Q&A session between Habakkuk and the Lord, at the end of chapter 1, there's a second Q&A session that goes all the way through the end of chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's prayer of response to God's answers to his questions. He said, what were the Q&A sessions all about? Well, the first Q&A session went something like this. Habakkuk lived in a time of great spiritual decline among God's people in the nation of Judah, and he looks around him, he surveys the spiritual landscape, and he says, God, don't you see how your people have Uh, how your people are backslidden? Don't you see how your people are going in the wrong direction spiritually? Don't you see how corrupt your people have become? Won't you do something, God? How long until you intervene and do something in our midst? Well, God answers him. God says, well, Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm raising up a new world power, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and I'm going to use them to judge my people and get their attention. That's Q&A session number one. Well, Q&A session number two goes something like this. Habakkuk says, well, I don't like that plan, God. I I know I wanted you to do something, but the Babylonians? You're going to use the Babylonians to judge us? They are wicked. They are pagan. They're more wicked than we are, God. Why would you use the Babylonians to judge your people? And he asked those questions at the end of chapter one. And in chapter two, we see God's reply to Habakkuk's questions. And his reply points us to the reality that there are only two ways to live. God wants Habakkuk to know, I'm going to deal with my people, the people of Judah, and I'm also going to deal with the Babylonians. So don't think that just because there's a delay in my response that I have not taken into account all this happening on the face of the earth. I will move in the lives of my people. I will move uh, in the earth. I will come against Babylon one day. That's what chapter two is all about. And, and chapter two points us to these, these two ways to live. Look what it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, the Babylonian, he's he's proud, he trusts in his strength. His soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Those are the two ways. Living life uh, without God and living life by faith in God. So in chapter 2, God draws a sharp contrast between the self-sufficient, self-dependent and the person that sees their need for the Lord and places their faith in him and his work. And so this chapter is all about this sharp contrast between the two ways to live. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. He says, the contrast here is between people of faith and people who arrogantly trust themselves and leave God out of their lives. There are only two options. You're either a person of faith or you are living without God in your life. Everyone in this room is in one of those two camps. There's no middle ground. There are only two ways to live. And so I want to dig in and examine those two ways and draw some application to all of us in this room and point out some implications for all of us in this room. So let's talk about the two ways to live. Number one, you can live without God. You can live without God. You can choose to live that kind of life. But here's what you need to understand, and I love the Bible because it gives us all the information we need to know. The Bible is straight up. The Bible lets us understand that if we choose to live life in this way, if we choose to live life without God, there will be consequences. For example, people without God are in desperate trouble. Did you know that? People without God are in desperate trouble. Look what it says in verse 4. Behold, his, the Babylonian, his soul is puffed up. The the Babylonians trusted in their might. They trusted in their strength. They trusted in their ferocity. They thought they were more powerful than anyone else on the face of the earth. They were the superpower at at this time. And it says there that his soul is proud. He's self-sufficient, self-dependent. Look what it says. It, his soul, is not upright within him. In other words, the Babylonian is strong. The, The Babylonian is mighty, But he's got a soul problem. His soul is not upright. Their soul is in trouble is what God is saying. And I want to say to all of you in this room this morning, you may think you have life figured out. You may be self-sufficient and self-dependent and think life is under control. You may not give the Lord much of a thought at all. But listen to me. If you are living your life without God, your soul is in great danger. Because one day you're going to die. And when you die, your body goes into the ground, but your soul keeps on living. And your soul will live forever in one of two places, that wonderful place called heaven or that awful place called hell. And if you die without God, if you die without Jesus Christ in your life, your soul will spend eternity in that awful place called hell. You may think you've got life figured out, but your soul is sick. Your soul is not upright. Your soul needs some help. And people that live without God, their soul is in desperate, desperate condition. To drive this point home, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. What it says in verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. A question is posed to Jesus and then he shares a parable to drive a point home. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, the Bible says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, will you settle this family dispute? We want our money, right? He said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to "To them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is saying, don't let your life be lived with covetousness, that, that desire for more. If I just have this, or if I just have that, then life will be good. Then life will be fulfilling. He says, don't live like that, because there's much more to life than stuff. There's much more to life than material possessions. They're the issues of the soul. Look what he says. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, because that's the good life, right? If you just have all the the stuff you need and you can live in comfort, then, then life is good. Eat, drink, be merry. You have everything you need, everything you want. But look what Jesus says next. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus hears warning against thinking that life is all about stuff. He's warning people against chasing the things of this world and never giving attention to their soul. Jesus says it like this over in the book of Mark. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What does it matter what you've achieved or what you've acquired in this life if you die and go to hell? What does it matter if you gain everything the world has to offer, but you lose your soul? You see, someone that is living life without God is in a desperate, dangerous condition because their soul is sick and it needs help. Their soul is ruined and depraved, and it needs to be be forgiven and transformed by God. And so, people that do not have God in their lives are in desperate trouble But here's the next thing I want you to see. People without God live like it. People without God live like it. Sometimes we act surprised when lost people act like lost people. But guess what? People that do not have the one true God in their lives, people who are trying to live their lives apart from God, live like it. You you, you see it in their life. Now, starting in verse 5, going down through verse 19 of Habakkuk chapter 2, There are five woes that God pronounces on the Babylonians. Uh, Five uh, statements of judgment for their sin. Five sins that God points out. The first one is found in uh, verse 5, going down through verse 8, and it is the sin of greed. Look what he says in verse 5. Moreover, speaking of the, of the, the proud Babylonians, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. In other words, the Babylonians can't get enough of conquering other nations. They love to bring in the spoils. Look what he says next. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe, notice that word woe, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So he's saying to the Babylonians, you are greedy. You can't get enough. But one day there's going to be a nation stronger than you that's going to take all your stuff away. Woe to you. The second woe deals with injustice. Look in verse 9. Woe to him. Who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone wall or the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. In other words, you've built your houses by taking advantage of people, by oppressing people. You have have gained by oppressing others. You have gained through injustice, woe to you. The third sin is the sin of violence. Look in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he's saying you have gained through violence. You have gained through iniquity. You've built your towns on blood. You're a violent people, and he condemns their violence by saying, "'Woe.'" The fourth sin is the sin of seduction, luring people to wrongdoing. Look what it says in verse 15. "'Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory.'" Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. So woe to you for seducing people to your way of thinking, your way of doing things. One day the cup of God's wrath will be poured out upon you for your seduction. Woe to you. And then the fifth sin is idolatry. Look what it says in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker is shaped in a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe, notice the word woe, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in it. Uh, Here the Lord condemns them, woe, for their idolatry. They were making things with their own hands and worshiping that thing they were making. Idolatry. And before you in this congregation this morning say, well, that was a long time ago. I'm not a Babylonian. I'm not not an idol worshiper. I don't worship Baal or Molech or anything like that. Listen to me. An idol is anything or anyone that's higher on your priority list than God. As a matter of fact, John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. And the Lord says, Babylon is guilty. Whoa, 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 whoa. In other words, they are living without me, and it shows up in their life. Now, what's the application for all of us in this room? Here's what I want you to to do. Examine the fruit of your life in order to understand your spiritual condition. Examine the fruit of your life in order to understand your Spiritual condition. It says in 2 Corinthians 13 5 that we are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, is there any fruit in your life to indicate that you really are a Christian? Listen, anyone can call themselves a Christian, but is there any reason for you to believe that you truly have been saved? Because here's the deal when you meet Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God begins a transformation process. So if you are living your life and there's been no change in your life, guess what? There's no Jesus in your life. You are living your life without God. And your fruitlessness is evidence of that. And I believe one of the most neglected things in the church today is this command in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Is there any fruit in your life? You can go out in your yard and find a poison ivy vine, and you can call it a blueberry bush all you want to. You can bring your neighbors over and say, look at my blueberry bush. But guess what? It's never going to produce blueberries. It's poison ivy. And you can call yourself a Christian all you want to. But are you producing any Christian fruit in your life? Do you see God changing you? Because if there's no change, listen, there is no Jesus. You cannot meet the living God of the universe and stay the same. Nothing to do with religious affiliation or denominational belonging or any of that. Have you encountered the living God through Jesus Christ? If you have, there will be a change. Enough of this. Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm living like the devil. No, it doesn't work like that. Christians aren't perfect, but Christians are in a transformation process. If you haven't seen that process in your life, guess what? There's no Jesus in your life. Because people that live without God show it. Show show it. They live like it, that they don't have God in their life. So that's one way to live. You can live life without God. But I've got some really good news for you. There's another way to live. You can live by faith in God. You can live by faith in God. Look back with me in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but... Here's the contrast, but... The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now I want to talk about this phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith. And it's a very important verse because this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times. So there's some very important theological truths that we need to glean from this verse. So we can just walk you through these these truths. In this passage, righteousness, when it says the righteous shall live by faith, righteousness is a gift from God, not an achievement. Righteousness is a gift from God, not an achievement. Now the Bible speaks of of Christians living a righteous life, of, of doing things God tells us to do so we can live a righteous life. But that's not how this word is used in this context. The righteousness here is a right standing or right position before God. It's a gift you receive from God. Now I'll show you this because Galatians quotes this verse. Turn to Galatians, New Testament, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, I want to show you this, so important. Look in verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writing here says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you're trying to earn your way to heaven, you're in trouble because you're not perfect. If you're going to earn your way to heaven, you've got to be perfect. No sin, no failing, no mistake, doing everything God's told you to do and doing nothing God's told you not to do. Perfect. Now, listen, anyone meet that standard? No. That's why he says you're cursed if you think that doing the right thing saves you. Because look what he says. Because everyone does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You can't do it. You can't achieve that standard. So look what he says. Now, it is evident that no one is justified. No one is made right with God before God by the law For the righteous shall live by faith. So in other words, you don't don't come into relationship with God based upon your achievement. Righteousness is not something you achieve. It's a gift from God that you receive by faith. It's a gift that you receive when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. I read a story about Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City, and he was quoted in the New York Times as saying this. I'm telling you, if there is a God, that should raise some red flags right there, if there is a God. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Wow. He thinks that he's done enough good things to outweigh his bad things and God's going to just usher him right into his presence. No, no, no. The only way you can be in a right standing with God is if you have received the gift of righteousness from God. The gift of right standing before God. Because here's the deal, and don't miss this. When you were saved, for me that was when I was nine years old, when you were saved, two things happened. Number one... Your sins were washed away. Can I get an amen? That's good news. I mean, that's really, really good news. Everything you've ever done wrong, every sin you've ever committed was forgiven by Christ because Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins, right? But that's not all that happened. When you were saved, not only were your sins forgiven, Jesus gave you his righteousness as a gift. You see, Jesus came to this earth, born of the Virgin Mary, and you know what he did on the earth? He lived perfectly. He never sinned. And when you placed your faith in Christ, he gave you that perfection as a gift. It is as if we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, they've been washed away. And he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. Isn't that good news? But you don't earn that. It's a gift that God gives to you. Now you say, okay, I want to be right with God. I want to be able to go to heaven and be in God's presence. I know I can't earn it. I know I can't achieve it. I've got to receive it. How do I receive that gift? How do I receive the gift of righteousness that comes from Jesus? Well, if you look in your notes, the gift of righteousness is received by faith. It's received by faith. Look what it says over in... Philippians chapter 3, Paul writing here, great passage, Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, Paul says, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul's saying, I tried religion, I tried to earn my way to God and I couldn't do it. But now I've met Christ. Now I have a relationship. And relationship is so much better than religion. And he says, I count all that religious resume as garbage because it doesn't get the job done. My works, my my attempt to keep the law did not save me. So it's rubbish. Look what he says. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Watch this and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, impossible, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So if you want the perfect righteousness of Christ to to put on as a robe, so God sees you like he sees his son, you place your faith in what Christ has done for you. You come to a place in your life, you say, you know what? I can't save myself. I've blown it again and again and again. And I realize that I'll never achieve that level of perfection. And so my only hope is what Jesus did for me. Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for my sins. He took the penalty that I deserve. And then after he died, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. So based upon what Christ did, I'm placing my faith in him. I'm trusting him to save me. I can't save myself. And when you place your faith in Christ, he forgives you and he gives you his righteousness as a gift. Theologians call it imputed or foreign righteousness because it's not yours. It's a gift from God. So righteousness is a gift from God, not an achievement. And the gift of righteousness is received by faith. But here's the third thing about this. Those that receive the gift of righteousness by faith experience true life. The just shall live by faith. Now what does it mean that the just shall live? Well, based upon how Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament, there are two different aspects to life in Christ. First of all, saving faith secures eternal life. Look over in Romans 1 with me very quickly. Romans 1, verse 16. Well-known passage here. Romans 1, verse 16. Look what Paul writes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for... What's the word there? Salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith... As it is written, the righteous shall live. Everyone say live. Live Live by faith. Now, in context, the word live there relates to salvation. Speaking of the moment you place your faith in Christ, you are saved from your sins. Amen? So, saving faith secures eternal life. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, your sins were washed away, you were given the gift of righteousness from Jesus, and you were given the hope of eternal life. Even though you may face death in this life, You go on living beyond the grave. You live forever in heaven in the presence of the Lord. Saving faith secures eternal life. But here's the second thing. Sanctifying faith leads to abundant life. When you get saved, you don't stop living by faith. Everybody look at me for a minute. This is important. When you get saved, you don't stop living by faith. You keep living by faith. Romans says it's from faith to faith. And Hebrews quotes Habakkuk 2.4 to make this point. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 38. Hebrews chapter 10 verse thirty. I want to show you how the writer of Hebrews uses this verse. But my righteous one shall live by faith. What does he mean by live there? If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So speaking of believers in Christ, after their salvation, they keep on living by faith. They don't shrink back. They're living as just ones by faith. They've received the gift of righteousness by faith, and they keep placing their faith in Christ. Now, some people believe this. When I get saved, I place my faith in Jesus, and after my salvation, then it's up to me. Now I'm going to just put in some hard work and live the Christian life. Hey, listen to me. You can't live the Christian life. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. And you simply cannot live the Christian life without God's help, right? So you need faith. Faith in God's continual working in your life, Faith in God's promises, faith in God's commands, that what God says is best. You live the Christian life by faith. You don't, you're not just saved by faith and you forget about faith. You live by faith. It, it's like this illustration. Let's say that you get on an airplane and, and you believe that the airplane, you have faith in the airplane, will get you into the sky. Now, some of you say, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't like to fly, right? I have a pastor friend back in Florida and he says, the Bible says, Lo, I'm with you always. But let's say you get on a plane. And you believe that plane will get you into the sky. You have faith in that plane's ability to get you flying. You sit down. You buckle up. The plane takes off. It gets you in the sky. You're in the sky. You take off the seatbelt and go to the stewardess and say, Listen, would you open the door? I want to jump out and start flying and she says excuse me he said i'm going to i'm going to open the, i'm going to jump out i'm going to start flapping my arms and i'm going to i'm going to fly the rest of the way it wouldn't work out so well would it listen you'd get to, into the air by faith and you would make it to your destination by faith it's the same way in the christian life You place faith in God's saving work through Christ to save you. But then after you're a Christian, you keep on placing your faith in God's continual sanctifying work in your life. You know that you need him every day, every day you need him to work in your life if you're going to live a life that honors him, right? The Christian life is from faith to faith. And so here's the second way to live. You can live by faith in God, eternal life, abundant life because you've placed your faith in what God has done and what God is doing in your life. Now, I want to close by just doing this very quickly. You may not be convinced. It's okay, Way two ways to live, without God and by faith in the Lord. But I don't know if I should choose to live by faith. I, I kind of like my life without God. I, I kind of like how things are going. I like living for myself. Well, let me just very quickly give you three motivations to consider the second way to live. To consider living by faith in God. Motivation number one the one who trusts in himself will perish. Those who have a right standing with God because of their faith will live. The one who trusts in himself will perish. Those who have a right standing with God because their faith will live. Back in Habakkuk 2, verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, verse 19, God says, woe, 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 woe. In other words, destruction is coming because you're living without me. Woe is you. John Piper writes, it shouldn't be hard, too hard for us to see what the main point of this little book is. Habakkuk. Negatively, it is this, proud people whose strength or ingenuity is their God will come to a woeful end, even though they may enjoy prosperity for a season, either as God's chosen ones in Judah or as the victors over Judah. All the proud, whether Jew or Gentile, will perish in the judgment. But Habakkuk stresses the positive side of his main point, namely, the just shall live by his faith. He means banking your hope on God no matter what? Habakkuk 2 is crystal clear. You can live without God and be destroyed or you can live by faith in God and be saved. It's just that clear. Let's just say that you were driving your automobile and you came to a fork in the road and one, uh, one uh, side of the fork had a sign up that said, Bridge washed out, Danger. The other side of the fork said, bridge intact, safe passage across the river. Now, you would be a fool to take the one with the bridge washed out. I mean, it's crystal clear. If you take this road, you die. If you take this road, you get across the river. It's just that clear. And it's just that clear when it comes to spiritual matters. Without God, destruction. But when you have your faith in Christ, salvation. It's just that clear. Let me give you a second motivation. One day God will set everything right and all will recognize his glory. Look what it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Love this passage. made my favorite verse in Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, verse 14. The Bible says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in the midst of all these woes... God reminds Habakkuk, there's coming a time when everyone will recognize my glory. When everyone will see me as I am and will will give credence to the fact that I am the one true God. One day, God will set everything right and all will recognize his glory. Now let me say it like this. That day's coming. At the end of human history, when the dust settles... God's glory will cover everything and everyone will see the reality, the power, the strength, the might, the holiness, the sovereignty of the one true God. And you will either be, listen, forced to recognize his glory or you can freely worship him today. But you will recognize his glory. It's happening. It's going to happen. Over in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that one day, listen, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Everyone, every atheist, every agnostic, every world religion, everyone will bow their knee before King Jesus. That day is coming. Can I tell you this? You can freely choose to bow your knee to King Jesus today. And let me just give you a word of testimony. There's no greater joy, no greater peace, no greater fulfillment than freely choosing to worship the one true God who alone is worthy of all glory. If you want to experience life, you need to worship the one true God. That's where you find life. There's a praise song that says, One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. But still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Why would you wait to be forced to bow before King Jesus? And forced to confess the Lordship of Christ? Why wouldn't you choose him now? He loves you. He died for you. He is good. He longs for you to follow him and worship him. I had a man tell me one time that he went to the Grand Canyon with his wife. And he said he got to the edge of the Grand Canyon, looked at it, and said, okay, I've seen it, let's go. Walked away. Now I've been to the Grand Canyon. And I thought, what? I mean, the Grand Canyon is majestic. And if you get to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you say, oh, I've seen it, let's go. You're missing it. You need to stand there and just take in the majesty of the creation of God. Don't miss it. It's it's wonderful. It's, It's beautiful. He did not recognize the majesty of that creation. And a lot of people are living their life without God, and they do not recognize the majesty of King Jesus. They're missing it. Choose to worship Him now. Choose to follow him now. No greater hope, no greater joy, no greater peace. Let me give you a third motivation to choose a life of faith. He, God, is the one true living God. Habakkuk 2 verse 20 says this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now there's a contrast at the end of chapter 2. He's contrasting himself with idols he said these people make these idols with their own hands and cover them with gold and worship these things they have made but in contrast the one true god is in his temple you need to worship him because he made you big difference and he says let the earth keep silence before him in other words consider who god is Consider His majesty. Consider His grace. Consider His love. And choose to worship Him. Choose to live a life of faith. Stop living without God. And so can I close by saying this? Would you consider the one true God? If you're living without God, would you consider how much you need Him? And how incredible it is to know Him in a personal way. You know, it's interesting that a lot of people, when they get really, really ill, they, they begin to consider spiritual things. Perhaps someone finds themselves in a hospital bed. And they're confined to the bed. Maybe they have different machinery on them. And they're unable to do anything for themselves. And they're experiencing their own frailty. Frailty. And it's common for someone in that condition to, to think about God at that moment. And you know why? I believe some people consider God in those moments because all the distractions are gone. The iPhone's gone. The TV's gone. The remote control's gone. Recreation on the weekend's gone. It's all gone. It's just you and God. Can I encourage you? To carve out some space in your life to consider the one true God. Put your cell phone down. Get into a room by yourself. Open your Bible up. Get on your knees. And ask God to speak to you. Consider Him. He's your only hope. Stop being so distracted by the frivolous things of this world. Don't miss God. Consider Him. Let all the earth keep silent. He's on His throne. Two ways to live. Two ways to live. There are only two ways to live.